Welcome to the Saving Lives Podcast. I'm Eddie Joe. This is part three of the three episodes, or three podcasts for that matter, on my career advice as to why you should not choose critical care medicine, whether you're a nurse or a physician, as your career choice. Again, this is kind of lighthearted, but at the same time, it's meant to inform you of what you're going to be getting yourself into. At the end of the day, there are far more pros to critical care medicine than cons. I just don't want you to be blindsided when you go into this uh, into this field. And today, in this particular podcast, we're going to be talking about death as well as family dynamics as reasons why you should not get into critical care medicine. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So first of all, let's start talking about death. You know, the saying goes that it's one of the two things that are guaranteed in life, death and taxes. The problem with this, though, is that honestly, nobody thinks that it's going to happen to them or that it's going to happen to their loved ones. And unfortunately, it rears its ugly head every day in the ICU. Again, these patients are at the extremes of their physiology, as well as their capacity to stay alive. We being the critical care doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, pharmacists, CNAs, I mean, everybody, we're a huge team. We're the only ones standing between their death and their survival. It's our responsibility to keep them alive when we can. But the truth is that sometimes we don't know what's the right thing to do. It's sometimes beautiful, uh, although it's hard to say, but those of you who are in critical care will know when the patient actually decides for themselves that it's time to die. But many times they, they don't declare it themselves. Sometimes we wonder what's the right thing to do with regards to end of life. Are they really, really terminal? What's the quality of life that they'd be okay with after, you know, suffering some catastrophic, uh, some catastrophic illness? What is the certainty that we could provide with regards to their quality of life and them recovering? A lot of times we try to have the family help assist us with these concepts uh, as to what the patient's wishes are. But oftentimes we're left alone to determine them. And that's that's pretty hard, guys. In addition to that, there's kind of a feedback loop that you have with your team. Chances are you're going to be working with them for many years and you're going to get to know everybody pretty darn well. And having a close-knit team helps out a ton. Speaking to your partner, speaking to the nursing staff, respiratory therapists to help make the best decisions is something that definitely helps a lot, especially for cases of moral injury. You have to make sure that we're all on the same page and that we're not being unreasonable nor insensitive when we're making determinations of the patient's prognosis. It's something common to go ahead and bounce ideas and emotions off of each other. And it's of utmost importance to go ahead and foster an environment where you could do this. Ultimately, you know, it's not easy to make decisions on your own. You will run into many moral dilemmas because of this. We took an oath to cause no harm. This is something every physician does and Ultimately, it's the goal of everybody in life. I mean, we shouldn't want to cause harm on absolutely anybody. But every now and then, we do feel like we're torturing people. I'll get into more of the family dynamics issues a little bit later in this podcast. But there's some patients, for example, who are a ward of the state, and you cannot get a hold of the responsible party in the middle of the night, or you have to wait for a judge to appoint a legal proxy for these patients. 
it could become very frustrating where you feel that you're causing harm to these patients. But I'll talk a little bit more about futility in the next section. Something else that's important is the fact that people don't die at home anymore. Generally speaking, they die in the ICU. This is something that's discussed by Dr. Atul Gwande in his book that's titled Being Mortal, in which he explores death in Western culture amongst many other concepts. I've read this book for myself, and I definitely recommend you read it for yourself as well. And what it basically discusses is that instead of a 156-year-old patient passing comfortably in their home with their you know, 120-year-old son and daughter, they're brought into the hospital for intubations, central lines, vasopressors, while the, fa- while the family discusses what to do next. And honestly, from my standpoint, as well as the standpoint of the nursing staff and everybody involved with the care of the patient, this is not easy for us. But then again, if you don't go ahead and do what the family asks for, you have to worry about litigation. I mean, they'll throw negligence at you. It makes makes the whole dynamic pretty darn challenging at the end of the day. Then you also have these patients who die suddenly on you. It doesn't happen very often, but they're people who are doing better and recovering, and sometimes they just decide to die for no apparent reason. And it's too late to determine the ideology by the time that they've arrested and you can't get them back. I mean, this is honestly extremely hard emotionally. You're left scratching your head wondering what you could have missed. Why in the world did they just die? Could this have been prevented? Ultimately, it's something that happens to all of us. But I will tell you, you will lose sleep because of this. You'll think about it when you know, you should be doing some other activity with your life. You'll blame yourself when this happens. And honestly, it's quite a large burden. You'll also have to confront young people who are dying. And when that happens, I mean, I can't describe how hard it is. Whether it's metastatic cancer that a young person has, like a leukemia or lymphoma, or even in more modern days, patients who are younger than you or, you or I are who have COVID. I mean, you, you take it personally to attempt to save the person's life at all costs. Ultimately, you know, in the case of metastatic cancer, you know you're not going to be able to cure them. But your objective is to at least buy them a little bit more quality of life before their time comes. So that instead of dying in the ICU with your staff there, instead they die in their own home, in their own bed, peacefully surrounded by loving family. You think about what you're going to do, like you think about what you were doing at their age. I mean, if there's like a 22 year old, you're like, wow, man, I was partying when I was 22 years old. And instead they've been battling, you know, some sort of malignancy for X amount of years. It's honestly quite, quite hard. Um, they'll never have a normal life in the case of terminal malignancies. And moving on from seeing these people die, uh, it's pretty hard. I mean, there's no, there's no other way to put it. All right, going into the last topic now, which is going to be family dynamics. I will give the disclaimer that the majority of family dynamics are excellent. Very loving people, um, people who want to help out, who care about their loved ones, people who make the right decisions to help you take care of the patients in the best possible way. So before you think that I don't like speaking to families, as a matter of fact, one of the things that gives me the greatest gratification in this career is family discussions. So even though I'm going to say some of the bad things here, I want you to keep in mind that ultimately this this component of it is worth dealing with for me. So, so I end up getting a whole bunch of benefits from the times that it does go well when, for example, patients have better outcomes or when they go ahead and pass on to the next life, that it's a peaceful process. But you do run into futility as well as emotional drain in this process. Because just because you could do something to a patient doesn't mean you're doing something for a patient. 
And a clear example that a lot of us in the ICU have noticed are patients who are who have had severe anoxic brain injury after a cardiac arrest. They're trached, pegged. They have a stage four sacral ulcer. Uh, they get frequent UTIs and go into septic shock three times a week. Then when you go ahead and you call the family, they say, oh, no, the patients are full code. You know, they're, they're, they're fighters. And this is extremely, extremely frustrating. Sometimes it does feel like we're torturing people. And it feels like, again, we're doing things to patients as opposed to for, for the patients. To watch them grimace while they're on the ventilator when the tracheal tube is, you know, going down their throat breaks my heart as well as that of my team. And it's sad to say, but we have to train ourselves to a certain degree to become emotionless, emotionless, excuse me, for the sake of mental sanity as well as self-preservation. Then you also run into ethical dilemmas. And th this is always hard because you learn at times that the reason why the family is not allowing the patient to pass away naturally is because they're counting on the government check to get by. Or even in some cases, when you have three adult children, two of them are out of town, and one is the caretaker who's been living with them for several years, doing their best to take care of the patient, loving the patient, um, and carrying the whole burden of the care for this patient. And when the time comes that the patient's critically ill, the caretaker, you know, the godsend of a child, is ready to let the patient go, while the family members who are out of town, they've never come to visit, they barely ever call, they say, oh, the patient's a fighter. And they say the patient needs a full needs to be a full code. Then the two-to-one distribution, you know, legally, they, at least in most states, they're the ones who carry the power as opposed to the one who's been with the family member the whole time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even though in critical care, we do a bunch of procedures, a bunch of sexy stuff like titrating pressures, sedation, antibiotics, meds, all that stuff. Something that encompasses a lot of your day is our family meetings. And every week you will spend countless hours discussing with family members who in some cases will not listen to your advice or medical recommendations as to what's going on with the patient. They also at times choose not to abide by the wishes of the patient, which is quite hard if you ask me. By the way, for those of you who are not in critical care and who've never read a living will before, the majority of them are purposefully ambiguous. They, they really don't help, which is quite frustrating. You can spend countless hours trying to be supportive with certain families discussing quality of life, outcomes, and you know, for example, in patients with severe anoxic brain injury, you tell them that they're never going to be able to feed themselves again or be able to... Uh, notice what's on the TV or understand their favorite TV show. And then the response that you get is that they've heard about miracles occurring and that they're your fighter and they're going to be a miracle. And again, this is, this is such a, such a frustrating event. Like you say to yourself, like, dude, this patient was bed bound even before they had the cardiac arrest. And not to mention that they're 162 years old. It, it makes it quite tough. And then it comes with all this Dr. Google that you see online. I am 100% supportive of families who are educated and look things up. But don't don't bring in witchcraft for me to to try to 
you know, impose on the patient. Don't ask me to go find a blender to give a patient wheatgrass juice, for example, through their peg and then threaten me when I say that we can't do that. I personally am quite happy to explore alternative medicines because there's a lot that I don't know and I'm happy to look it up and see what the side effects are, et cetera, et cetera. But there's somewhere where we all have to draw the line. Then there are these phony doctors out there who sell consultations for patients who are, for example, brain dead, who give families hope when two independent physicians who are perfectly credible, board certified, et cetera, to make the determination of brain death or death by neurologic criteria have carried out full neurologic testing. It just, it just creates a very bad scenario for us. And again, it's, it's very frustrating. Then you have something that we all hate and we all see, unfortunately, and that has to do with violence. There's a lot of verbal assault and physical assault that's documented throughout society with regards to healthcare workers. When patients are on the brink of death, patients' families tend to be on the brink of their sanity. And we understand that this is a very difficult situation, but honestly, don't threaten me or my team with violence, whether it be ver verbal or physical. I mean, this honestly stems from immature reactions as well as lack of coping capacity from families. I think that society has failed these folks and it's, it's showing up in our, in our hospitals. Sometimes the patients don't even tell their loved ones of their underlying conditions or that they're dying. Then when they show up to the hospital on their last days, the family is obviously visibly upset and threatening us, saying that the patient was doing fine until we started caring for them. And then we're the ones who are kidding the patient. And then again, this, this includes the litigation component that I had discussed earlier in the podcast. Now, many nurses can attest to the violence that they have suffered from either patients or their families. It doesn't happen very often, but it's something to consider and something that as a society, we need to work on a little bit more. So that concludes the podcast as to why you should not pursue critical care medicine. But don't, don't take my word for it. I really do want you to pursue critical care medicine. It's extremely rewarding. I just wanted to go ahead and get those things off my chest so that you're aware of what you might be facing. Honestly, I'm not trying to be dramatic or a drama queen or anything like that. I promise that if you choose to go into critical care, it's far more rewarding than you make. The plan of this was to create a post podcast. The plan of all this, to follow all this, excuse me, is to create a post and podcast describing all the great things of critical care medicine. So please check those out too when they come out, hopefully within the next week or two. Much love to everybody. Thanks for your support. Have a great day. Bye.